0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Zach Kriegman. Zach was a director of data science at Thomson Reuters before he got fired for posting a fact based criticism of Black Lives Matter in an internal memo. This is one of the worst examples of cancel culture and enforced orthodoxy around the issue of race that I've seen in a while. Zach was fired for pointing to research by Roland Fryer, who I just had on the podcast, and others which showed that there was no anti-Black bias in police shootings, as well as that DOJ investigations into police departments in certain cases caused an increase in homicides due to the police pulling back. Now, as a director of data science at a major media company that has a respected fact-checking wing, part of his job was to ensure that Thomson Reuters was using data accurately. And he got fired for doing exactly that. Now he's suing Reuters for wrongful termination, and in the meantime, he has a Substack where he has posted the memo which got him fired, as well as some other essays. And you should go check that out. In this conversation, we talk about the circumstances surrounding his firing, and most of the time we spend on the substantive issue of BLM and the effect it has had on policing and crime. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. So without further ado... Zach Kriegman. Zach Kriegman, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me on. So I've been following your story as the senior data scientist at Reuters and then the director of data science at Reuters. And I've been pretty appalled by everything that happened to you. And so before we get to all of that, and we're going to get to all of it in detail, who are you? What is your background? How did you come to care about data science and then climb the ladder to such a prestigious position as a data scientist? Yeah,
1: I actually have a very unusual background as a for a data scientist. So I started school, I guess, in 95, uh, college and dropped out around 98 after like basically like one and a half a year, put up by some other time off. And then I, um, Went and started as a software engineer. Worked in a few startups and ultimately decided, ah, I don't. This isn't really what's for me. I want to like have some kind of more human interaction. And mistakenly, I decided I wanted to become a lawyer. So went back to school, got my undergraduate degree. They were really nice, letting me finish classes that were seven years <laughs> from seven years ago. And um, and I went to Harvard Law School, got my law degree, and practiced law for a couple of years, and then. After that, I went to practice as an economist at an econometrics consulting firm. So basically, like um, basically these very large like antitrust cases, they become like these battle of the experts, where each expert will create a model of the economy and how the antitrust activity impacted prices and stuff. And those experts have teams of economists who basically produce those reports. And I was an econ major and undergrad. And obviously, uh, I had a law degree, so I did that for a few, a couple of years, helping write these reports and doing this sort of econometric analysis. And I realized, oh, this is actually really similar. Well, I started hearing more and more about this, like machine learning and artificial intelligence and self-driving cars. And I took a Coursera class, and I realized, oh, wow, this is really similar to what I'm doing in econometrics. It's basically just stacking the same models that we're using in econometrics up. A million times essentially to, to create much more complex models, but anyways, I did some Kaggle competitions. I don't know if you've ever heard of those, and sort of like played around no. with this whole data science thing, and ultimately got a job at Thomson Reuters doing data science.
0: And then you eventually became the the director of data science.
1: Yeah, a director of data science. I'm not actually sure if there are any other directors of data science, but you know, there's a there's a lab of um, probably depending on how you count, between 70 and like, I don't know, like 150 data scientists. And mm-hmm. I started as a senior data scientist, and then I was promoted to director, and I ultimately had a team of like 10 other data scientists doing, basically leading them in applying the newest breakthroughs in artificial intelligence and deep learning in, to Thomson Reuters' uh, varied data sets. Like, we have huge legal datasets, IP and science, finance, tax, and of course, Reuters news. So we were building these giant artificial neural networks and training them to sort of understand and be able to write legal
0: documents as an example. So a few years ago, there was a huge hoopla in the media and on the internet about this guy, James Damore, who wrote an internal memo at Google Thoroughly researched, giving reasons why Google was not 50-50 male-female. Yeah. And he cited research from the top journals. And um, it was clear to me, at least, that he was not a foaming at the mouth sexist yelling at women to get back into the kitchen by any means. He was very much a, he was a true progressive in the sense that he wanted to expand opportunity as much as possible. but was citing research-based reasons why at the median and at the average, men and women don't have precisely the same interests. And so wouldn't be perfectly represented 50-50 in every profession from coal mining to nursing, et cetera. And you would think at a place like Google, which is highly statistically literate, IQ out the wazoo, that this would be accepted or at the very least discussed when they solicited feedback from a diversity training that they had had. When I read your story, being a lead data scientist at Reuters, which is as close to synonymous with a sort of objective, literate, fact-checking organization as we have. Some people might dispute that, but, you know, like a a year ago, if you had asked me, what is my impression of Reuters' brand in the public imagination, I would have said, I don't think I could name even two organizations that are more synonymous with objectivity and fact-checking than Reuters. I would struggle to think of any, actually. So when I read about your situation, it seemed to me very much like a kind of Demore memo situation on steroids, but about race rather than about gender and about an issue that really had directly to do with potentially thousands of lives that could have been saved. So in a way, it was much deeper and more important issue than merely the gender balance of a, of a workplace. Yeah,
1: I followed the James Damore story pretty closely. But if you had told me that that, that that same story would be playing out at Reuters, I would have been shocked, especially because his story was a little different, right? So he had he was making sort of this argument, I guess, about how the internal functioning of the company, but it didn't go to the core mission of the company. The core mission of Reuters is to accurately report the news. And I was pointing out that our news reporting was wildly diverging from the facts in a way that was, you know, like you said, leading to thousands of, contributing at least, to thousands of people being murdered. And that sort of like, that is a, went directly to Reuters, like, core mission. If, If the reporters at Reuters can't talk about the statistics, the facts, and the research underlying the stories that they're reporting then there's no way they can possibly uh report the news accurately and what i discovered is that you know the a conversation like that was just impossible i should mention that i wasn't a data scientist at reuters so reuters is one of the divisions of Thomson reuters and like i said mm-hmm. we have tax and legal and uh you know, news, like writers, and we also had IP and science and stuff. And I was part of a centralized data science capacity that would serve each of those uh, different organizations. But yeah, exactly. And, you know, just yeah. watching it, you know, just seeing, I mean, James Damore really kicked this whole cancel culture thing off in, in a lot of ways, at least I think in the popular understanding of it, like, oh, there's really like strict limitations on even very factual conversations that we're going to be able to have in the workplace at this point. Because, you know, in case someone is offended, and uh, yeah, there's definitely a parallel
0: to it. We'll get into the actual substance of the arguments you made that got you fired. But before we get there, I just want to, I want you to describe to me sort of in detail what, what actually happened from the point where you first gave your colleagues feedback they didn't like to you getting fired for giving that feedback? What is that story? Yeah,
1: well, I'm just trying to think where I should start in this story, but basically,
0: yeah, where does it begin?
1: You know, I've been noticing this. Maybe I should just do like a, a quick summary of sort of what my post was about, because basically, what happened is yes. I posted a summary of the academic literature about Black Lives Matter, which I'd been following because as a data scientist, I was sort of curious about the was actually coming out of you know universities in terms of this question and. Internally, I had been noticing as this sort of like new racial ideology had spread throughout the company. And it was sort of growing more and more concerned because I knew that this, this sort of research had been showing that Black Lives Matter was core claim that police are biased towards shooting Black people just didn't stand up to scrutiny. It's just untrue. But not only that, that claim had been towering this decrease in policing and increase in violent crime, including all these murders. And I knew that as someone with white skin saying anything about this at Thomson Reuters would be putting my career in jeopardy, but I felt like Reuters had a public trust to be reporting honestly. So what I did was I compiled a summary of the academic literature, and I posted it to our internal collaboration platform called The Hub. And you know, just as I expected, that immediately made me the target of this barrage of intensely angry and ultimately highly racialized attacks. And then the company's response to those attacks and this sort of this brouhaha, was to censor everything I had written and basically shut down any kind of critical examination about the facts of the Black Lives Matter movement. And that was even more concerning to me because now not only were we reporting these falsehoods that were getting people killed, but the company was literally saying, and we're never going to talk about it internally, making it impossible to ever rectify, making it impossible to ever have for our organization to sort of grapple with the facts and correct our reporting. So then I sent an email to senior leadership in the company because so far I've been dealing with HR and I was hoping, well, maybe senior leadership doesn't know about this uh, whole situation. They've got their they're busy with other things. So maybe if I make them aware of this, they'll write the shit. So I sent an email to senior leadership and other colleagues sort of describing how this racialized bullying had made it impossible for us to have conversation about these Facts underlying our news stories and how our news reporting was uh, diverging from those facts, and then they fired me for that. Does that answer your question?
0: So yeah, I'm curious though if also you're you're uh, at Reuters for five or six years, right? Yeah. What is the precipitating event that makes you feel I have to write about this topic? Is it something that happened in the news? Something that happened at Reuters? What What made you feel I have to write an essay and talk to my colleagues yeah. about this data? No, on? that's
1: a good question. So. A couple things. One, I was seeing this sort of this ideology, this new racial ideology spread throughout the company, including like um, uncritical support of the Black Lives Matter movement and its core claims from like senior leadership all the way down. And two, I was seeing Reuters news reporting stories inaccurately and in a distorted way based on that sort of internal racial ideology that had spread throughout the company. And I was... Can you give
0: any examples? I know you've you've written about the Jacob Blake example. Can you give some examples of what you mean by misreporting? Yeah.
1: So you have examples like um, Reuters referring to the shooting of Michael Brown as one of a number of egregious examples of lethal police violence, despite the fact that an investigation by the Justice Department run by Barack Obama's Attorney General Eric Holder had cleared the police officer of any wrongdoing. Or you have Reuters re- mm-hmm. referring to a wave of killings of African-Americans by police using unjustified force, despite the fact that the statistics clearly show that no such wave had taken place. In fact, police shootings have been on the decline. You have the Jacob Blake example. You know, at some point, Donald Trump said something along the lines of, you know, he pointed out that, you know, more more white suspects are shot by police every year than blacks. and then Reuters fact-checked him and repeated what I view as the false claim that blacks are shot disproportionately to whites. And I can explain why I think that's Mm -hmm. untrue. But so basically-
0: And just to also to add color to the Jacob Blake example, what you mean is that they did not include in the article that he grabbed a knife and was poised to be about to stab the cops when the cops shot him. So they painted the scene without including that crucial detail. Exactly, yeah.
1: They made sure to mention that he was shot in the back, which was true- but they completely left out that mm-hmm. he had just grabbed a knife and he was with arm's length of the police officers and they thought that, that he'd been wrestling with them. He'd been you know, mm-hmm. violently resisting arrest and they were worried that he was going to turn around and stab them. So right. they would sort of systematically leave out the key contextual details to make the stories much more divisive and inflammatory than they otherwise would be.
0: One of the examples that most irked me from the past year or two here is uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, who I, I made, it's been a little bit of time now, but I believe he shot three people yep. that he was entangled with in various ways. You know, some of them were attacking him and, and he shot three of them and killed either one of one or two of them. I don't remember. Two, I think. Um, one or two survived. Yeah, and yeah. one survived. And all three of these people that he shot were white. They all happened to be white. And in most of the mainstream coverage, and certainly most of the mainstream coverage from liberal-leaning outlets, it was not mentioned in most of the articles that the people he shot were white. Mm -hmm. So I ended up talking to a lot of people that kind of make a cursory glance at the news that believed that Kyle Rittenhouse had shot three black people because every article would, would include the fact that Kyle himself was white. It say a white man or a kid, really a white 17 year old, however old he was shot three, you know, people yeah. without including their race. So as to leave it ambiguous and, and let people fill in the blanks with the caricature we have in our heads of white guys with guns, killing black people. So many people actually came away from that thinking he killed three black people or he shot three black yeah. people. And I thought that was a transparent, and dishonest and and it was so obvious what the you know, what the conversations were, even if it was only in the head of the journalist writing the article, it was you know, the absence of a description there spoke very loudly to me about the dishonesty that is involved in the description of many of these events. Yeah.
1: I mean I think that's exactly right. That's there's no way that people weren't that the writers of those articles weren't aware of what they were doing. That's what I've become more and more aware of myself, is that these are conscious decisions to spin a narrative. And when, you know, when someone does point out the problems in the reporting, it's a conscious decision then to bury that or to ignore it. These are not just sort of like innocent decisions. And I think, you know, you can see that just in terms of like, in a lot of Reuters stories, just who they choose to interview and who they choose to ask for a quote, right? They, they go out and they'll, they'll look for some kind of quote from someone supporting a, supportive of the BLM movement. But they never include a quote from people who are critical of it or people who know, who can provide context about, well, actually, police are not biased towards shooting black people. And I'm sure it's not that they never come across those people as they're looking for quotes. It's that those quotes don't fit the narrative. So they leave those out and they just leave these quotes to give the reader a sense that, you know, there's a clear answer.
0: Okay, so let's get into the actual substantive questions here because my audience is well acquainted with my critiques of Black Lives Matter, which are very similar to yours. Um, but there are, I'm always open to the possibility. There, there are people here thinking, well, how could it be true that Black people don't get shot disproportionately by the police? I mean, I know 10 or 15 names off the top of my head, some of which are children, of black people that unarmed that have been shot by the police, and I can't even think of one name of a white person yeah. that has been shot by the police. How could it be that my perception? How could I have been radically lied to on such a huge scale, so as to be wrong and deeply wrong about this empirical fact? What am I missing? Yeah.
1: Well, actually, I uh, read one of your articles today where you listed all of these white people who had been killed, and you know, I was I hadn't heard of none of them. And partly I think that that's more of a sort of an organic result, which I think you've described in some of your writing, but that's sort of more of an organic result of who's doing the filming and who's, and when when one of these hits, you know, the media or social media, how much views it gets, how much outrage it gets. And then as that, that's sort of a self-reinforcing cycle where the more outrage these things get, the more you see them. And then the more people assume, well, these are the examples that I'm seeing. I'm not seeing all the examples of white people being shot by the police. I'm seeing examples of black people. So then it becomes like, well, this is literally what you've seen with your own eyes. So I think there is, I'm not, you know, when I sort of was criticizing reporters and journalists a moment ago, I do think that there's this sort of organic thing that sort of almost happened more on its own in terms of this cycle. But if you're just talking about It seems like you were prompting me to to talk about some of the evidence more than just talk about that cycle.
0: Yeah, I was. But actually, now that you mention it, let's get to the evidence in a second. Let's table that for one second. I I want to address this point because it's extremely important. And in a way, I think it shapes people's opinions even more than the data does. You know, as someone that has looked closely into this issue for years, I know and I know you know that... Every year, several dozen white people are killed by the police unarmed. Sometimes those are caught on camera. And the ones that are caught on camera are every bit as galling to watch as the, you know, the Alton Sterling video or the George Floyd video. And I've talked on this podcast about Tony Timpa before, who was a white man killed in Dallas with a knee on the back of his upper back. Yeah. For 13 minutes, and the cops are joking as they crush him into unconsciousness and death. They're joking about him. They're saying, Wake up, Tony, you know, go to school. You know, it's like every bit as disgusting to watch. And most people I talk to still don't know about these videos. There are many other videos of of white people unarmed being killed by cops in pretty brutal and unjustified ways. In Tony
1: Timpa's case, do you think that that was an intentional murder, or do you think that they were? being callous about the way that they were restraining him, but didn't realize they were actually killing him.
0: I know it's very hard to believe that when almost any cop puts a suspect in a hold that they are intending to murder. Yep. I think usually they are neglecting the, the plausible consequences of their hold for a suspect that is clearly struggling to breathe. And so it's a, a murder of neglect rather than of intention. Yeah,
1: yep. neglect or ne- negligence rather. Yeah, or reckless, really, yeah, like, neg- 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 negligence. Right. Yeah, I think that's exactly
0: right. Yeah, but you know, to, to close the loop here, what, what happens is the media doesn't pick it. These things don't become national news events when the suspect happens to have white skin, mm-hmm. and that creates the misimpression that this on, this kind of stuff only happens to black
2: people. Right, exactly.
0: But let's also get into the let's get into the data a little bit. Black people comprise thirteen percent of the American population but far more than 13% of those who get shot by the cops full stop and shot by the cops unarmed. Why isn't that smoking gun proof of the fact that there is a racial bias here?
1: Yeah, I think that's, that gets to the heart of the confusion. So that's basically looking at disproportionality relative to the population. And that doesn't work for a number of reasons. The most important is that we know that different groups have dangerous encounters with the police at wildly different rates so blacks and whites differ on you know the, the total number of violent crimes the total number of homicides or the rate of homicides the uh, rate of resisting arrests uh, and so forth um, so what you really need to do so and in each of these creates a different number of situations where police officers legitimately need to use lethal force to protect their lives or the lives of someone else right so the question is how how is the question when we're looking for bias is whether or not Police are using force disproportionately to those number of situations where they actually legitimately need to use force to defend themselves or someone else. Uh, That's really what bias in the application of lethal force would mean. Probably the best, easiest measure of how often they need to use lethal force like that is how often police officers are actually murdered by criminals of each group. Now, when you look at it in uh, in those terms, I think something along the lines of 37% of the murderers of police officers are black, but only about 24% of the suspects shot by police officers are black. Whereas for whites, it's along the lines of 42% of the murderers of police officers are black, more because there's more white people uh, in the country. So more white people murder police officers, but but, there's, but they also are shot at a higher rate than that percentage. So they're shot at around roughly, I think, roughly 46% of the suspects shot by police are black. So what you see it, when you measure it relative to a variable that's relevant to police bias, namely the rate at which police actually need to use to defend themselves because they're at risk of being killed, what you see is that whites are shot disproportionately to the rate at which, for instance, they murder black, uh, to the rate at which they murder police officers?
0: So the point you just made is is a very important one. And it's um, mathematically, it's a point that probably, a, you know, a smart middle schooler could understand and, and certainly most high schoolers could understand. So it's not actually that complicated. And we, I think we implicitly understand it in almost every other context. So for example, you brought up, up this example, I brought up this example. About fifty percent of our species is male, born male, and about fifty percent of our species is born female. That's the population base rate. When you look at who gets killed by the cops, it is um, you know roughly ninety percent, maybe even more male. Yeah. Now, on its face, you could ask, "What the hell is up with that?" Doesn't that prove that the cops are targeting men? Uh, that there's a bias on the part of the cops. Well, the reason no one talks about that is because we all have a deep and intuitive and instinctive understanding that men are much more likely to be violent than women. We all know this, and only a very small segment of highly overeducated people would even (laughs) deny that there's something innate about this. Men are more likely to be criminals. When the operator gets a 911 call saying somebody is a danger to those around them, almost always it's a man. So the police are encountering men much more often, even if they treat men and women precisely the same, they are going to end up arresting, shooting, being shot by a lot more men than women. So people understand that the right base, the right benchmark is not the US census in the case of men and women. But that that observation holds true across the board, right? The police are not you know knocking on doors randomly like it's not it's not like jury duty where it should be distributed randomly exactly. it, they they're responding to 911 calls that is that is one possible benchmark as you say another perhaps even better benchmark is who is successfully shooting and killing cops because that may be the best proxy for how often a cop might reasonably need to use his or her gun so when you look at those benchmarks the the whole conversation changes
1: yeah i think that's exactly right And I think, I mean, it shouldn't be surprising to people that, I mean, in a sense, like, yes, we all have this, I think, almost biological understanding that men are more dangerous. We're literally larger, probably from an evolutionary perspective, probably in large part to be more dangerous so we can go out and wage war. And our personalities are more aggressive on average than women. So I think that that's, you know, you're right that there's like there is something that's fundamentally more understandable about that and racial differences, but that at the same time it shouldn't be surprising to anyone that there would be racial differences because the you know the whole premise of the Black Lives Matter movement is in a sense based on the fact that blacks have been disadvantaged in our society through slavery and Jim Crow and then subsequent you know destructive policies and that has a profound socioeconomic effect and you know crime rates are strongly related to those to you know socioeconomic status right if you look at a city like Boston I mean I, I haven't looked around in other cities but I was recently looking to looking at all the faces of the people murdered in Boston and they're almost all you have yeah, I saw that right It's like one or two white faces. Yep. Um, they're almost all black victims of murders. And there's very little interracial murder, like most, the vast majority of people, mm-hmm. black people who are murdered are murdered by black people and the same for white people. And I would assume for, you know, other races as well. I haven't looked into that, but so, you know, this, I, like, the, it shouldn't be as surprising as it is to people given that their whole, like the whole movement, their whole is about sort of addressing these racial inequalities. So these racial inequalities have had impacts on violent crime, but anyways,
0: Here's my, I mean, the other way in which my background assumptions have been really overturned in life is by reading a lot of Thomas Sowell. And basically, I I think a lot of people in our age are operating with this assumption that when you have different ethnic groups in a multi-ethnic society, what would be normal or standard is for them all to be, to have the identical distribution, uh, the identical, you know, to have the perfect census number of doctors and lawyers and incarcerated people and nurses. That is one of the most deeply flawed assumptions that you could possibly have, that educated people regularly have. So, like, if you just completely don't think about black people and white people today, right? Just think about quote unquote white people, what we think of today as, as white people, people descended from Europe. If you go back 100 years ago and you look at just how different the, not only the crime statistics, but the occupational distribution of Irish versus Italians versus Polish immigrants versus immigrants from Sweden, you find massive disparities as the norm. Yeah, And this is true for every multi-ethnic society that's pretty much ever been studied ever since different ethnic groups started living amongst each other. So, you know, the background assumption that there's something normal, there's something weird about Disparity between groups, that's something that has to, that people have to sort of get over too.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like, even you would basically never expect there not to be a disparity in any meaningfully separate group. It could be like a difference of, you know, it could be a different profession, you know, it could be a different like right. hobbies. You're going to find some disparities, most likely, in a, along a variety of different factors. The idea that we would ever find like no disparities that's that would be a, actually a very unusual finding.
0: What would have to be true for that to be true is we'd have to live in a monoculture, right? Every group would have to have the exact same culture. Mm-hmm. And again, culture is another name for all of the values and desires and aspirations and habits that you grow up with. Right. So the example I use is as a black American, I grew up playing a lot of basketball and seeing basketball as a sort of culturally black sport, which it is. And then when you look at the NBA, it's three quarters black, right? It's completely dominated by black people. As opposed to soccer was not really, it was definitely around in in my youth, but it was not something that black people played quite as much as we played basketball. And I think as a result, you see far fewer Black Americans at the upper echelon of soccer, and that's a matter of cultural choices. I mean, it's a little bit of a culture isn't quite a choice. You're born into a culture and you inherit those values and beliefs. But you know, like we're not we're unsurprised to see disparities that align with different cultures. That that's actually what it is to live in a multicultural society: is to expect those disparities and, and differences, and then you can have the attitude to celebrate them. You can have the attitude to hate them and want to close the borders. You can react to it however you want, but you can't deny the fact of cultural difference and the disparities they inevitably lead to, you know, all around.
1: This is one of the most amazing sort of intellectual mistakes. I also read Thomas Sowell's, I think it was Discrimination Disparities or something. I can't remember the name of the book now, but it was just such a perfect explication of this point. And it's still, it, it still amazes me that We have people saying basically any disparity is evidence of discrimination, like, like people who have a lot of sway and they're not just like laughed out of the room. Mm -hmm. That idea is just so deeply (laughs) wrong. It's just sort of amazing.
0: Yeah. One of the things I I do sometimes still is just look Google household income by ethnic group and you will see the rather large difference between. Today, between Americans of French descent and Americans of Russian yeah. descent, between Nigerian Americans earn much more money than Haitian Americans, right? right? You, you'll just see disparity all the way down. Well, the,
1: the funny thing about that is, like, you look at how much Asian Americans outworn earn, earn white Americans, and you're like, okay, well, if you mm-hmm. believe that disparities are evidence of discrimination, are you saying that our entire society is systematically... Racist against whites because that's—I mean—that seems to be what you have to be claiming if you're if you're going to point at every disparity and say, but well, obviously that's preposterous, right? America is not systematically, you know, racist against white people.
0: Yeah. So the informed response to that would be to say there has to be a criterion that distinguishes mere disparities from disparities caused by discrimination. And the way to do that would be to subject it to a kind of econometric analysis where you try to hold every relevant variable constant. And if there's any disparity remaining, you can attribute that to racism. So can you talk about the research uh, that you've looked at, which has attempted to do that in the case of killings of Black Americans, white Americans, et cetera? Yeah, well, really, I was
1: only able to find one study that attempted to do that. And that's Roland Fryer's study coming out of Harvard. One of the top researchers in his field actually set out to prove that the Black Lives Matter movement's claims were true. And it's the only study that really controls for the circumstances of shootings and I think he coded something like 290 different variables for each shooting and then did an econometric analysis to see when you can basically when you compare apples to apples, similar circumstances like is someone shooting at a police officer and they're returning fire or is someone grabbing a candy bar off, you know, a store shelf and running down. So like those are two radically different circumstances. Obviously, you need to treat them differently and control when you're comparing two different racial groups, you need to make sure you're comparing similar circumstances. So that's the only, I was actually unable to find any other study that did that. And his result, he, he was surprised, I think shocked by the results as he recounted in a podcast with you that I was just listening to. But, mm-hmm. you know, and basically it found that there was no, there, that police were not more readily using lethal violence against black people. In fact, if anything, there was a very slight small effect the opposite way. They were using more lethal violence against white people, although it wasn't statistically significant. There was another mm-hmm. point that I thought would be interesting to talk about, but it's
0: still my mind now. So yeah, the 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 other result, the, there were two big results in that paper. One was the the what he called the most shocking result of his career, which was that there was no bias against black people in shootings, in fatal shootings or or shootings in general. It just, there was nothing to be found there. And if anything, there was perhaps a small bias to be found in the counterintuitive direction, that is to say, against white suspects. The other result in that paper is that controlling for similar circumstances, police were more likely to put their hands on a black suspect to rough up, to punch, or otherwise non-lethally harm a black suspect, which is a, an interesting result. I mean, you would at first glance, you would think that those two things would be linked, that either the police would both be biased against blacks in roughing up black suspects and shooting them, or they wouldn't be biased in both. But turning out to be biased in one and not the other, it poses an interesting puzzle to which I have, I mean, I have theories about why I think that is true. But um, in your memo, you didn't, really put forth any theories about why you think that may be true, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts.
1: Yeah. Well, I I mean, I thought Roland Fryer's explanation of that was not very convincing. So my understanding, and I'm curious if he still believes this because it seems problematic to me, but my understanding is his interpretation of that was basically cops have this utility function for exhibiting racist behavior or something. And, but they, but they're rational actors and they know if they all, go all the way and actually kill someone, that they'll end up in jail or fired or something. So they, mm-hmm. they basically um, indulge in that racist behavior right up to that line. But that doesn't really explain why there'd be a difference in, between blacks and whites suddenly at that line. Presumably, that's always a concern for police officers when they're using lethal force. They're always worried, well, my, You know, if I do this wrong, that there are going to be consequences. and. He didn't really explain why they would have a different calculus for whites than blacks in that circumstance. The the explanation.
0: Oh well, I think I actually think. Oh yeah, go ahead. Well, what's your explanation? Well, the explanation
1: that makes more sense to me, and I I don't know if there was a way that Roland Fryer's study controlled for this, but basically, you have police officers who are not necessarily engage, who not necessarily indulging in racist proclivities, but rather they have. I think there probably is a level of bias. They have ex- personal experience policing difficult neighborhoods and they want to prevent a situation from getting out of control. Police officers, the more force they use upfront, I think they often believe that the less likely that a situation gets out of control, the more quickly they can get a suspect under control in handcuffs, in a position where they're not able to move like on the floor, with you know, with someone you know holding their arms or something like that on the ground, the less likely there is, less chance there is for the situation to spiral out of control. So my guess is that there may be bias there in the sense that the prejudging situations, in part based on a suspect's skin color, or maybe just based on a neighborhood, maybe just based on other factors that might correlate with racial factors like kinds of clothing that people are wearing and that kind of thing, things that uh, Roland Fryer wasn't necessarily able to control for, and Mm -hmm. that that's ultimately what's driving this. That's not to say that I'm sure that there are some racist police officers. I haven't, but I just don't think that that's what's driving that. I just don't see much evidence that that's what's driving that disparity. But what do you think? I'm really curious what your opinion is on that.
0: So I, I think I find Roland's analysis to be compelling, intuitively true, but I also think yours is true. I mean, the, the multiple things could contribute to it. So for me, it's it's very easy for me to believe that, to so, sort of picture two different kinds of cops. One cop is is actually pretty much racist and say he is in this small minority of cops who are really just kind of racist through and through and kind of somewhat sadist. There are cops like this. Like there are cops that are drawn to the job because they have a sadist impulse and that is a way them to exercise their sadism in a and sort of get paid to do it that's the sad truth it you know the, the profession is a little bit of a bug like for people with authority fetishes mm-hmm. so let's like you take that kind of cop you take that kind of cop and they go to and and by the way some of those cops are black some of those not all of those cops are white sure you take that you take a suspect that they categorize as a thug in their mind and they enjoy being wielding power over this person. And they do it up to the point of lethality because they don't want to become the next Derek Chauvin. They don't want their life to be ruined. So in the same way that someone who beats their wife, a guy who beats his wife will beat her without leaving any bruises, a cop like that will abuse the suspect in a way that is unlikely to blow back on him. Because the truth is that cops until recently, and and still to an extent, rarely get, very rarely get held accountable for things that cannot be proven. A body is, you know, if you kill, you can't hide a body. If you rough up a suspect without leaving bruises, it's your word, it's often your word against theirs, and police never snitch on their own. They almost never get punished for those kind of lower level abuses. So the incentives really do break down of like, you really won't get punished for a lot of this behavior and your life will be destroyed if you are the next white cop to kill a black but, person, yeah, but, but not to kill a white person, that will you
1: know. Oh, okay, so but I guess the question is why would it, so I that, make, that all makes sense to me, that you have cops who, maybe some minority of cops, who enjoy sort of basically hurting people to some degree, and then, but they don't want to get in trouble. But what I'm a little unclear of is if that's their proclivity, then why are they stopping suddenly for black people, but not stopping... Like at that line of okay, I can't go past this line, otherwise I'll get in trouble, and but not stopping for white people, so right. I guess the idea would be that either that they know that they'll get in more trouble, but then that doesn't
0: oh not, not, not just more trouble, they may not get in trouble at all. you know like like we said earlier, when a white unarmed person gets killed by a yeah. cop, it's not really considered national news, yeah. When a black unarmed person gets killed by a cop, it's news for years and it's in the history books. And cops know yeah. that. They know it in their but books. They, Okay,
1: so this, this explanation is interesting, but it's, it's different from Roland Fryer's explanation because Roland Fryer's explanation was more like, these are opportunistic racists. And you're saying these are opportunistic mm-hmm. sadists, you know, and I guess they can, they can both go together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my guess is like, there's opportunistic sadists, there's opportunistic racists. And then there's also what you described which is to say cops that are neither racist nor sadists, they are just normal cops doing a very dirty and tough job. Yeah. A job where they're putting their life on the line and they can't afford to be politically correct about their judgments of people. If they get a hunch, again, if you think this is all callous talk, go look up a video of cops getting, I would call it sucker shot because it's like a sucker punch. Yeah. Uh, someone that seems like the most peaceful person in the world one second, and then less than a second later is shooting the cop to death. There are plenty of these videos on YouTube. This is the job that cops have to do that keeps you and me safe. That's the cold, hard truth of the subject. And it's one thing to sit in judgment from afar. It's a whole nother thing for that to be your job. Right. And so there's a lot of cops in that position. They, they cannot afford to be politically correct or to worry about racial sensitivities. If they feel like they see a bulge in the pants that could be a gun or a hostile look in the eyes, that could be the difference between life and death. And I think those cops are still, are, they may be, they have whatever facility with their hands that they do. Like some of them are going to be a black belt in jujitsu, like Anthony Barksdale, who I had on my podcast. Most of them are not. And they're going to do what they can to deescalate the situation non-lethally.
1: So I think what makes me dissatisfied with Roland Fryer's analysis is that there's, he's not providing anything to, to distinguish between his version of these racist cops with their utility functions, and my version with these maybe biased cops, uh, but not racist cops, not acting out of racial animosity. And
0: so he might say, I don't know what he would say, but one thing I would say is the difference between racism and bias against Black people in this context may just be a distinction without a difference.
1: Right. So there's something... Those just might be the same thing. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Is it a distinction without a difference? So there's there's an idea, it was just having it's it's lost me, but I mean I think there is a I th- so do you think that there's no difference like if you're a cop and you've you've been in the basically so bias can be uh, rational in a sense right if you know mm-hmm. that people in a certain wearing a certain kind of clothing are more likely to be gang members and carrying guns and so you go and you pat them mm-hmm. down without them actually seeing them do anything illegal that's not mm-hmm. That's not irrational. It might be something that we want to discourage mm-hmm. as a society. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I could see both directions on that, but it's not based on uh hatred. it's based on your experience of that those that people wearing mm-hmm. that kind of clothing being more likely to carry guns. I'm just using that as uh, to move it away from race for one second because I think it does make a difference whether people are acting out of racial animosity versus Acting out of a subtle understanding of different statistical probabilities, basically. Do you think that that's is that a distinction? Yeah. Without a difference.
0: So I guess I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, I think they are different things. I think there are people that are foaming at the mouth about the Jews running the media or something crazy who've never met a Jew in their whole life, right? Like it can't be anything rational that's behind that bigotry. It's just pure. It's not like they. They got beat up. It's not like they got mugged by a Jew once and overreacted to that, right? It's just like pure invention, right? And so there are racists like that, racists of pure myth and invention. And then there's someone who got mugged by a Black person and only after that overreacted to that by developing an, an overwrought and... Outsized fear of black people in general, right? Those are different things. Those are different kinds of people. And what's more, there's there's the other case of a smart cop who has a who's been working in, in a neighborhood for years, and makes informed and educated guesses based on superficial characteristics. And those guesses may be right much of the time. They might actually be very useful, right? He's acting on his intuitions. He's not acting like a rookie. He's acting like someone who actually knows what criminals tend to look like around here, right? And I can't dismiss, you you can't really dismiss that knowledge unless you are from where he's from. It's like, what are you going to say? He's wrong? You don't, you're not even from there, right? (laughs) Like, how could you know? Um, So I do think those are different things. On the flip side, I would say they don't feel that different if you're the one being discriminated against wrongly, right? If you're one of the cop's wrong guesses where you're just a black guy minding your own business, but you fit the profile, it doesn't really matter, tends to not matter to your psychology whether the cop is a racist of pure invention or a racist, or rather, sorry, like a statistical discriminator that's making an informed guess. It it tends to piss you off a lot. The sort of implicit false accusation and the road rage that kind of results from being falsely accused, it tends to land in your psyche the same yeah. way.
1: Yeah. Oh, I remember the point that I w- wanted to make, which is that you may be right that it's, that ultimately doesn't matter, but one of the reasons why I find Roland and Fryer's explanation a little bit less convincing is that I think the statistics show that uh, Black police officers are just as likely to... Happen, you know basically just as likely to shoot but uh, maybe even more likely to shoot black suspects mm-hmm. and if it was mm-hmm. really racism driving that distinct that those differentials that you know and more likely also to lay hands on black suspects it was really racism mm-hmm. that was driving those you, you'd expect to see it with black police off you'd expect to not see it with black police officers and see it with white police officers and i think i haven't actually looked into this Specifically, But I think that the data shows the opposite, which is more compelling to me for a something that's maybe biased, but not motivated by racial animosity. I mean, I've actually had the experience right. of being racially profiled for a while because I was a hippie and I had a beard down to here. And I really looked very distinctly mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm Jewish. And I think with my beard down to here, I looked distinctly like a a Muslim
0: kind of Arab. And
1: whenever I would Mm -hmm. get on the plane, I was always pulled off for out of the security line for Mm -hmm. extra searches and they would pat me down and they'd go through. And then as soon as I cut my beard, that disappeared. Um, And Mm -hmm. obviously it's totally different. It's totally different than if you're compared to being a, a black person in American society, especially a poor black person who's struggling to make their way and has is receiving all these messages about and personal experiences about racism but um, I think that a lot of it does have to do with the messaging that you're getting one of the things that I that I think of is like when all of these sort of like white liberals are talking incessantly about how racist white people are like as a black person how could you not listen to them and trust them and believe that you know all their white peers, Are just walking around with this intense racial animosity all the time, or you know, that's seeping out. Mm -hmm. And if you did believe that, how could you not then uh, let that color every other interaction Mm -hmm. you have with white people? For me, that it's almost impossible for me to imagine like being able to work in a professional environment if I believed that everyone was out to get me, or there was like this sort of subtle like Mm -hmm. hatred for me that was seeping through. It's like, there's nothing I can imagine that would be more sort of poisonous to my success or my well-being than believing that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing I've noticed is that black people who grow up around only other black people um, and in like predominantly or only black environments sometimes have really like black people who truly don't can't say they have a good white friend. Right. Their perceptions of white people are. Entirely what they're getting from whatever media they're consuming or from rumors, essentially. It's like sometimes you see people that they are suspicious of, you know, even white and and met them like white people in general, thinking that all white people are racist. Um, Whereas a black person like me that grew up around a lot of white people, the natural way, like, like face to face becoming friends my perception of you know as you say white liberals is that they're uh, you know among the least racist against black people on earth at least in the classical sort of old fashioned bigot of there may be more of the condescension and lowering standards and you can't ex- expect black people to play the game by the same rules as white people, a kind of bigotry of low expectations. But there is truly like the ghost of old fashioned racism has truly been exercised from the white liberal mind. And, and, uh, and um, I think there's no reason not to be honest about that. I do want to talk about the
1: funny thing about that is they, they'll then go on about how racist they are. (laughs) And if if you're hearing these people who I, I agree, I think that they're, I mean, apart from the bigotry of low expectations, I think that they really have exercised all this racism out of their bodies, but then they're talking constantly about how racist they are. How could you not believe that? Because you can't step mm-hmm. into their minds, right. right? You just...
0: Right. But anyways, go I- Yeah, no, so I think, I think people that don't actually grow up around those people sometimes believe their claims yeah. about and then carry that paranoia. They carry that paranoia. They're in an environment where the white people around them are not at all racist, but you're worried that there are. That they are because of what they've. Yeah, told. they're literally telling you over
1: and over again how racist they are and apologizing for it, but yes. also reaffirming it. That it's sort of bizarre,
0: right? So um, let's talk about the other half of, of your argument in your memo. Was that Black Lives Matter? The rhetoric around Black Lives Matter, the anti-police rhetoric, the entire cultural transformation revolution of it's. It can be almost hard to remember how totalizing this was in, in 2020, but it was, I mean, just like put yourself back in, in that moment. It's like, it's impossible to go a single day without talking about BLM, right? It's every article. It's every face. Silence is violence. It's every Instagram post, every Instagram user with a black square. It's every company circulating in an in, in internal memo. It's right? It's people texting you to ask why you haven't posted anything on Instagram, not why you have have posted some anti-BLM stuff. People simply texting you to ask why you haven't posted anything, right? To inquire an accusatory sense as to your silence. That's where we were. So your argument and the argument of many other people has been that that environment created a situation where the police pulled back. They stopped proactive policing. They stopped going up to the person that looked sketchy to them and asking for their ID and perhaps finding an illegal gun that they had, which led to an arrest, which ended up preventing a murder, right? And the net result of that was that the murder rate spiked. You can't argue with the fact that the murder rate spiked. And the spike is directly, it starts pretty much the day George Floyd is killed, right? There's, you know, the chart looks like this for years and then George Floyd is killed and it looks like yeah. this. Well, there was
1: another spike a few years earlier in the earlier BLM flare up. But yeah, that's right.
0: So your, your argument is that the rhetoric and the environment that resulted from Black Lives Matter created thousands of excess homicides that fell almost totally on Black people. And so BLM, I suppose you could say indirectly, but BLM caused indirectly the deaths of thousands of Black people that otherwise would be alive. Today. Yep. Can you flesh that out?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, I feel like you did a pretty good job of it. There's a, a bunch of studies, you, mostly looking at this, um, you know, the, the timing of the spikes in the murder rate and looking for alternative explanations. And the first, after the Ferguson effect, so I guess there's two separate, there's like the Ferguson effect and the Minneapolis effect, and both go by different names, uh, depending on who's talking about them. But basically. The first time they were looking at other things, like maybe this is about heroin or something like that, but none of the other explanations for why there was a sudden spike uh, right after Ferguson really made that much sense. And I I think that's another one where Roland Fryer's research was really the best because he was able to take advantage of the fact that there were different, in, in different cities, there were different police shootings that caused an uproar at different times and correlate. The uproar or the lack of uproar about the around shootings with those time periods in those cities, and really connect it. So it wasn't just like in this case of Minneapolis effect after George Floyd. It was more of like almost like a national thing that was happening all throughout the whole country simultaneously. But in the earlier case, it was more there was some more regional stuff uh, in city and city. And what he found was that in cities that where the the Justice Department was doing a investigation of the police department if there had been like a highly publicized uh shooting there would result in this dramatically higher murder rate following that but if there hadn't been a highly publicized shooting there wouldn't be increased murder rate so that really connects it specifically to the black lives matter organizing protesting and promoting this uh, falsehood that police are basically hunting black people or at least biased towards shooting them with the uh The evidence, I think, just sort of builds when exactly the same thing happens in Minneapolis. And again, the timing is like, is sort of perfect. Like at the beginning of the lockdowns, you saw sort of violent crime declining, actually, or or staying roughly sort of constant as there are fewer people out on the street. And then as soon as George Floyd dies, you see this huge spike in violent crime, just as police are reporting themselves that they're you know, oftentimes less likely to be willing to go out and confront suspects, engage suspects, We're talking about defunding the police, all this kind of stuff. So it really is, it builds a very clear picture. And I don't know of any alternative theory that can capture the pattern of spiking homicides, the timing of them, how they've happened in different cities, and so forth. And the homicide rates are really pretty dramatically higher. So I think before these BLM and Homicide spikes. We had like I think there was around eight thousand black people were being murdered each year, and now it's closer to ten thousand. So I'd have to go back and check those statistics more carefully. But I do know that you know for the last few years it's been reported and just around ten thousand people, a little bit over ten thousand I think last right after George Floyd was killed. So it's just I mean the the number of people who are who are being killed is just astronomical. And when you compare that to the number of unarmed people who are killed by police, right, you've got about roughly 18 unarmed black people killed by police each year. Obviously every year is a little different. And like somewhere in the neighborhood of 26 unarmed white people and thousands of black people being murdered by criminals in their own neighborhoods, 10,000 every single year, and maybe somewhere in the range of like, you know, an extra thousand as a result of police pullback over the last, you know, basically since BLM started. So it is pretty sobering and pretty disturbing.
0: It is sobering. It's It disturbs me a lot because I fear there are literally millions of people in this country who are totally psychologically normal people, good people, who would hear the last three minutes, four minutes of our conversation and just think we were total nutjobs. Like, really, these guys think that BLM caused the murder rate to go up? BLM caused more Black people to die than are killed by the police? I mean, I, the, like, well, the, the, this 90s. set of facts is like, yeah, there, I mean, there's so many ways people are confused that they, there's so many confused reasons people would think that you and I are crazy for taking that statement seriously. I mean, the first one is people have crazy, innumerate, incorrect beliefs about how many unarmed black people get killed by the cops. And this is correlated with politics. The Fox News watchers think it's quite low and they're correct. The very liberal people, you know, often think that a thousand people, yeah, or more uh, unarmed black people are more get, get killed every year because people, you know, people aren't in the weeds on this. They're taking their cues from... Their friends and their social media feeds, and just to be fair, there's a, you know if you if you ask the Fox News watchers how many like illegal immigrant homicides there are a year, I'm I, I bet my life their guess is going to be way higher than the sure. true number, right? So there are different issues on which people on each side have totally warped ideas. Um, this is not a partisan point. This is just to say. So like that's the first thing people don't understand how think the police few unarmed black people and unarmed Americans in general get killed by the cops every year. The second link is that people don't, a lot of people think the police have nothing to do with the homicide rate. They seem to believe that police behavior, police morale, police practices has no relationship to the homicide rate. Like the NYPD could do, they could behave any kind of way. They could work half as many hours. They could work twice as many hours And the New York homicide rate would stay exactly the same, or it would fluctuate for reasons totally unrelated to the NYPD's behavior. I don't think the average Democrat voter thinks that, by the way. This is a very fringe belief, but it seems like basically the entire journalistic class on the left is pretending to believe this. Every elite journalist living in a low crime neighborhood pretends to believe this. Working class black people do not believe this, nor do working class white people But this seems to be, again, a widely subscribed belief among overeducated people, right? This is like, that that would be like a mainstream belief at like Columbia where I worked for for instance. So there's that and you combine it all and people think that someone like you, especially because your skin happens to be white, is both crazy and racist to say that BLM has likely caused an excess of maybe 2,500, maybe even 10,000 murders and it's, it's very hard to knock down all of the layers of ignorance to sound less crazy.
1: To yeah, I mean, it is one of the interesting things. Like, you're only allowed to talk about Black Lives Matter as a white person if you're supporting it. Otherwise, you're racist or, at best, an ignorant clown, kind of like, uh, you know, clueless about your own racism or something like that it's sort of like a, a remarkable position to have that you're only allowed to talk about these things if you support BLM because so many black people don't support BLM and there's so many black intellectuals and researchers
2: who've,
1: who are horrified by what BLM is doing. But as a white person, you're only allowed to agree, agree with the black, part of the black community that supports BLM. You're not allowed to sort of like, you know, agree with Thomas Sowell. Or agree with, you know, mm-hmm. your criticisms. It's it's really sort of amazing. And by have and by having that belief, and by the way, I think it's largely white people who are enforcing that. Like it certainly was white people who are enforcing it at Thomson Reuters. All the people who came out and really dug into me were white, as far as I can remember, or maybe Asian, white or Asian, mm-hmm. interestingly. But it's like, how can we possibly as a society have honest conversations when by default Every single white person, which still includes most of the people in power, have to adopt one perspective, whereas anyone who, any white person who doesn't adopt that perspective, it will immediately be sort of ejected from the conversation and their jobs and canceled. And when you still do have so many white people running these media organizations, that creates an environment where you can't possibly sort of report honestly or have an honest conversation about anything. It's really mm-hmm. pretty disturbing.
0: No, that that is right. I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit of an article several months ago on Barry Weiss's Substack, Common Sense. They were talking about Hollywood writers' rooms. And it turned, you know, one of the observations someone made is that white people are so afraid to talk, to do anything that's not woke yeah. because the consequences for them are huge, that it ends up being mostly the black writer's that are courageous enough enough to ever push the boundaries. It's like the black writers are the ones that are trying to push the boundaries and do sort of not woke stuff. And it's the white writers that are terrified just because black people, as my friend Camille Foster says, we have the melanin force field, which deflects an accusation of racism. So yeah, no, it it is a problem. I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, like what is the remedy here for this? In your memo, you say that identify basically why, you know, you ask the question, why is it that we've gotten this so horribly, horribly wrong? Like, what is it? And you, I, basically, ignorance of rudimentary facts, which is why pretty much the left has gotten this particular question, the link between racial bias and police killings of blacks, the second and third order consequences of anti-police rhetoric on the homicide rate and specifically the black homicide rate. Why is it that we've gotten this so wrong? And you say ignorance of facts. I want to dispute that with you because I think the ignorance, you know, I think unfortunately the truth is that people on all sides are ignorant of all kinds of facts. And we are driven much less by, at least most people, by assessing facts and which facts we know. We're, We're driven far more by just belonging to a tribe and for white people in particular, not being called racist. I think that for many white liberals, what's going through their head when they read your memo has, it's like you basically run, the part of their brain that engages with numbers is completely switched off, right? It's like you're talking about people at Reuters, none of them have an issue understanding your argument about the census and about what's the proper benchmark, right? Like I said, that's middle school statistics at most high school. They all get that. The problem is the part of their brain that deals with that is completely shut off because most of us are very emotional creatures, and guilt and the possibility of ostracism is a thousand times more powerful than facts for many people. So when they see that you're making a, you're a white guy making a criticism of BLM, they know they have two options: one is to destroy you, and to continue to be in esteem within their community. Mm-hmm. And the other option is to not destroy you they've worked for you and to themselves be labeled a racist as a result and therefore cast out of their society and everything or you know. Yeah. And to have some of their friends hate them and maybe lose friends and to maybe lose relationships. And given that choice, they choose option one before your arguments even reach the part of their brain that deals with math.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I think I agree with you to a large degree. I mean I don't see these as mutually contradictory. I mean, I think the you're describing in a sense why they're so ignorant, and part of the reason is because their media sources are part of these tribes, as they are themselves, and so their media sources aren't reporting basic facts to them. Like, their media sources aren't reporting, there're 10,000 people, black people murdered each year, but only about 18 unarmed black people killed by police. And when they're covering the Black Lives Matter movement. But I completely agree with you. I think that human beings are tribal animals, tribes are bound together by these own, like pseudo religious ideologies and to go against the religion of your tribe is basically to be ejected and kicked out of your tribe and to do that in our sort of I tend to see all these things in terms of evolutionary perspective but to do that in, in a, an evolutionary perspective to be ejected from your tribe meant probably certain deaths so people are mm-hmm. extremely tribal and they're you know I think the research really shows that be capable of shutting off their brains completely when it comes to their tribal beliefs, and I think it's just sort of an unfortunate accident, historical accident, almost that the liberal tribe, tribal belief system, has adopted this incredibly anti-reality perspective, specifically about policing, police being biased towards shooting black people because, and it's probably driven by the fact by a genuine, you know liberal interest in fairness and equality and compassion for other human beings and the horrific history of, you know, you know, slavery in the United States and Jim Crow in the United States and sort of like a genuine. So I think that's probably what drove that belief system into the liberal identity, the liberal, you know, ideology. But now it's like, it's completely tribal and no one can ever, no one can ever challenge it.
0: Yeah. One of the, one of the best ways to counteract your own tribal false beliefs is when you have so much skin in the game that you have to get the answer right for your own safety, mm-hmm. right? If your own safety depends on the answer to some question, you suddenly become extremely good at getting the right exactly. answer, right? And all of the tribal stuff goes, you suddenly find your mind out of the window. You know, this is why if all of your money is being bet, on whether some stock is going to go up and is far more clear about an, an objective and not influenced by trendiness and by bullshit than if you're betting your friend's money, right? This is true. When you have skin in the game, everything changes, including that. So, you know, one of the things you pointed out, which I think is really pernicious, is that all of the people, so outside of the activist class, right, the ideologues, and, and even some many of them, actually, all of the journalists and elites that linked arms with the activists and promoted the defund the police narrative. They did not live in almost 201. They did not live in the neighborhoods that have seen the massive spike in homicide and other crimes. They don't live in those places. Those places might as well not exist as far as their immediate experience is concerned. And that is a very big problem. I've said this many times on the podcast before. When Gallup polled Black Americans in 2020, during the, the height of everything, and asked the question, do you want more police in your neighborhood, less police in the breakdown in your neighborhood, or the same police presence in your neighborhood? The of The answer f- from our most respected polling organization of Black Americans was 20% said they wanted more police in their neighborhood, 20% said they wanted less police in their neighborhood, and 60% said they wanted the same. Yeah. So that means combined, 80% said they wanted the same or more. That left only one in five Black people agreeing with Black Lives Matter's take on police presence in general. That's a minority, right? That's on its own. That tells you a lot of the people demanding more police in this neighborhood, including the people that have forced cities to reverse their decisions on defunding and dismantling police, such as in Minneapolis, have been poor Black residents of crime high crime neighborhoods, the one who directly have skin in the game on what the crime rate is. Not you and me, not elite journalists at the New York Times or Vox, not the high profile activists that have moved out of those communities into, you know, nice houses in low crime neighborhoods. None of them have had skin in the game on, on those issues. So it costs them nothing to say defund the police. Yeah. It cost them nothing.
1: Yeah, that's. I think that's exactly right. And I often think of my hometown Newton, where there's basically no murders. I mean, most years probably no murders. Very wealthy town. But I just imagine, like, you know, just a couple, you know, just a town over, you've got like dozens of murders each year. And if that was happening in my hometown, I think the people there would be calling for police on every single street, you know, on every single corner, and they would be telling the police make sure you pat down every kid who comes by because I don't want my kid to be the one who's murdered, who's one of these dozens of murders in our town each year, right? But those are the, Mm -hmm. I mean, in a place like Newton, you've got, you know, these very powerful people, very successful careers. These are the kinds of places where our journalists are living. And I think if if the, the violence was happening in their neighborhoods and the executives, you know, at these news agencies, if the violence was happening in their neighborhoods, and threatening their children, it would be a totally different story.
0: Yeah. Okay. So final question, and this will seem like a total curveball given our entire conversation. Is there anything good you can say about the effects of the Black Lives Matter movement? Is there any good they have done?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, for instance, I'm a big proponent. I'm super in favor of like uh, police body cams. I think that's mm-hmm. a great idea. I agree. So some of the things that you've suggested in your own writing, I think are good ideas. I mean, to be honest, though, I think that they've been the the movements, there's not that much good to say, in my opinion, and maybe I differ from you a little bit in that regard. Like I think that the that even to the extent that they're raising these issues, they're raising the issue of how do how should our society try to remedy years of hundreds of years of slavery and Jim Crow and all this kind of stuff.
0: But they're raising
1: it in the most counterproductive way possible. They're raising it as by making it in, by pretending and forcing everyone to pretend that the challenges of black communities are because of ongoing overt racism by white people. And I think that racism has been devastating. And I think that the biggest challenges that the black communities are, you know, that black communities are facing, like a lot of other black people, are not overt racism. I'm sure there's Some levels of that overt racism from white people harms black people. But I do not think those are the main, I do not think that that's the main thing holding any black person back in this country today. And historically, certainly, historically, I think that's what's holding a lot of black people back because families were destroyed and communities were destroyed through years of this kind of oppression. But, I think, the black community, but the, I think the Black Lives Matter movement is focusing the entire discussion, ongoing racism, systemic, institutional racism happening today. And I think that that's almost entirely a misdirection of what, a misunderstanding of what the, the challenges are. And I know that I'm really not allowed to say that as a white person, but, you know, there's, a, I again, it's like, I, there's a lot of other black, there's a lot of black researchers and so, and people who are making that point and i agree with them mm-hmm. i think they're they have the better part of the argument
0: no i think i think we've let what the academics would call standpoint epistemology seep far too into our consciousness like you know the the notion that you as a white guy would have to apologize for having an opinion about this that is very researched is ridiculous you may be wrong maybe you're right or wrong but it's yeah. got nothing to do with your skin color you know like as a black person Let's say I did a lot of research about the opioid crisis, which, you know, a lot of which has hit like, you know, the white middle class and the white lower class. Do I not get to have an opinion on the causes and and the solutions because of my skin color? No, no one would accept that logic in any other scenario. As for answering my own question, the one thing I can really say that I would put on the positive ledger line of the BLM movement is that before the BLM movement, before 2013, Or 2014, when it really began to be big, there was a troubling norm of police simply not getting punished for anything, no matter how bad. Mm. That actually really was the status quo. Like it, you would have to search like a needle in a haystack to see an example of a cop going to prison for anything. That's, you know, killing white, black, Hispanic, Asian, purple. It doesn't matter what the abuse was. The norm was was non punishment, and that that's a dysfunctional incentive structure for any group of people to be working under. Whether you're talking about cops or surgeons or anything where malpractice can lead to death, so I put on the positive ledger line that that's no longer the case. Cops do get punished now for fear and and basically the other the previous ninety minutes of our discussion is all stacked on the ledger line of the harm that that BLM has caused to the black community and to the nation at large. So I try to be to always be fair in, in giving credit where credit is due. And that's why I asked that question. Um, and I would agree with you, you know, something like universal body cams is really a no brainer. Yeah not only because it protects suspects, but also because it protects cops. I mean, good cops should want universal body cams because what better way to prove that you didn't actually harm a suspect than to have the whole interaction on camera? You should have nothing to hide. So, you know, discussions like that were totally rocket-fueled by BLM, and that's all to the good. Unfortunately, there is the whole rest of our conversation testifies to the negative consequences, which supporters of the movement have really failed to yeah. reckon with, honestly.
1: And well, and which, where would you say the overall, if you had to weight the good and the bad, do you think that the, do you think the bad outweighs the good of the BLM movement? Or do you? I mean, like, so we have more focus on, you know, we body cams and more police accountability, but we also have, I, I don't know if you agree with me about this focus on you know, maybe misplaced, focused ongoing racism as number one challenge uh, that black people face. And we have these lies about police shooting, police bias, which, where do you think the, if you had to add it all up?
0: I, I hesitate to to shoot from the hip on an answer, like on a question that big, but you know, I, I guess it's very tough to see how the pros could add up to several thousand lives lost. And I think it's, it's very easy to underweight the value of those lives because the media literally does. Like no one talks about the, like quite literally no one I know could tell you the name of a two-year-old or three-year-old black child killed by a stray bullet in Chicago this year, even though it happens every yeah. year, right? And there's some link between that child dying and police behavior and BLM rhetoric. Like there is a plausible link there. It's now, I think, beyond dispute. And I don't know anyone who could tell you the name of of such a child. I know a lot of people who could tell you the name George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or all to know those Sterling. And I'm not saying they shouldn't, or Tamir Rice. I'm not saying they shouldn't use names. They should know those names. But what I'm arguing is that we, in practice, we actually do undervalue certain black lives, which is to say those black lives that are taken by other black people, by black criminals. And we underweight those people in our moral analysis of the time and of these policies. And so that's, you know, I, I'm not, I can't really do a a full omniscient moral accounting of the pros and the cons, but I can say we really horribly underweight the cons on the ledger sheet. Yeah.
1: I mean, and it's not just the people who are actually killed. I mean, for every person who's killed, There's a hundred traumatized kids, a hundred kids who who hear about that and think, oh, that that could be me. That's, I maybe don't expect to live that long or like transforms their view of their world and how they should go about achieving success in this world, right? It's like, it seems Mm -hmm. like it's potentially just totally devastating to the communities, even the people who survive in those communities Mm -hmm. where those killings are happening. And that's
0: Yeah. A lot of kids have PTSD from growing up in the hood. That is a fact.
1: And how can you struggle and to, it's it's a struggle for everyone to be successful. But when you, when you believe that you're, you know, you're, you know, I, I don't think anyone can get to these top level schools and stuff easily, but when you're dealt with that much disadvantage and you're worried about surviving every day, and you're also told that the entire society is stacked against you and working against you. I mean, it's just hard to imagine how anyone uh, succeeds in that environment. But.
0: Yeah. So listen, we have come to the end of our conversation. This was really great, Zach. And I I really commend you for your bravery. For It is not easy to have a good job and, and a cushy position at that job and to see something true in the world that you know is going to blow back on you in the short term, at least, in a horribly negative way. And, you know, you describe in your memo, talking for a long time with your wife about whether you should even publish this and what it it means for your family and your prospects. I mean, this is the kind of thing that these are the kinds of moments that, you know, I I actually, I heard Ilya Shapiro, I I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, recently, who kind of got canceled from his position at Georgetown over a, a poorly phrased tweet. He said that, Next to his, I think he said next to his mother dying, it was the worst day of his life when he realized that he was being canceled. So, you know, this is not something to minimize, you know, so, you know, when people will minimize the fact that you got fired at, at a news organization for reporting something, reporting a failure of news reporting, basically. People will minimize. Oh, he, he he just lost a job. You know, he's fine. Look, he's on Coleman's podcast. He'll he has a Substack. He'll he'll find his footing. And I and I think you will. You, I hope that you'll find your footing precisely because people like me and Barry and hopefully my listeners will uh, support you. And, and you know, they are a community of people that will essentially call out your bravery and reward it because otherwise the incentives of the system don't change. Yeah. Right? But it's really nothing to minimize what they did to you. You know, when there's a recession and everyone loses their jobs, no one is talking about how a job doesn't matter then, right? Everyone thinks the 2008 financial crisis is a huge deal, but we'll minimize it when a person loses their job in a cancellation type situation. So, I commend your bravery, and I hope that my listeners support you. And I, I would ask that you can tell, ask them, you know, tell them where they can support you. Oh yeah,
1: so you can find my Substack at Kriegman dot dot com So K R I E G M a N. And you can find, um, so I actually have a, a legal case against Thompson Reuters You can find a ways to contribute there, which, you know, it, it's hard to fund a legal case, harder to fund a legal case when you're unemployed. So any contributions are welcome, but I, you know, and I would minimize a little bit the, uh, I think that, you know, in all these cancel culture situations, you know, the people who are canceled suffer, but I think the people who are really suffering are the people who need these conversations to happen. And, you know, I can go out and find another job probably, and we'll be okay. But that's, that's who I think the real, the re- people who really carry that burden. But thanks for having me on. William.
0: All right, I Zach. It. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.